together. Father, once again, as we approach our time in your word, we know we are so desperate for you to help our understanding. Lord, I am desperate for you to speak what you would have us learn through what has been prepared. Cause us to be enlightened with these things, cause our hearts to be encouraged by these things, cause our lives to be changed through these things, and cause your name to be glorified through our understanding and through our practice of these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you once again to take your Bibles with me and open them to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as I'm sure you're well aware, has been our study for some time now. And this morning I want to draw our attention to verses 18 through 25, possibly down to verse 27. And so I want to read that for us as we begin our our time this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I was thinking this week if Romans was described as a, as a mountain range and many of the chapters were described as peaks within the mountain range and really just to bring that a little closer to home for us here in New England, if Romans was the White Mountains and many of the chapters represented the peaks that were over 4,000 feet we would know that each chapter is majestic. We would know that each one of those chapters has vistas for us to view around and to learn from. But the highest peak in the range would be chapter 8. 
it would be Mount Washington, which, if you're from California like I am, is a small mountain. There is no greater truth within this entire book than what is found here in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the pinnacle place. And we are slowly making our way through the mountain range. And just like it takes time to reach the peak of a mountain uh, in our area, if you were hiking some of the white mountains, it would take time for you to hike up each and every one. Some of you have reached all 40-plus peaks of the 4,000-footers. So, too, it takes time for us to reach the peak of this great chapter. That peak is going to come in the final verses of this chapter. The verses where we hear those comforting and exhilarating words in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wonder and the great confidence that we know to be true in our salvation being fully realized in the reality of no separation from God. Getting to the top of any mountain takes a lot of time. And yet one day you see and enjoy the glory on the top. And if you have ever hiked to the top of any mountain, then you know what I am referring to. But you also know by your own personal experience, that the process of getting to the peak is often a painful process. It's painful physically as you work harder and harder to get to those new heights. It's spiritually, or I'm, I'm sorry, it's emotionally painful as you fight against the internal desire to quit at every step. When I was in my young teen years, My parents were very involved in youth ministry in the church that we were attending in California at the time. And because I had three older brothers, I, being the youngest brother, was able to tag along every time something took place within the youth ministry. My oldest brother is six years older than me, so when he was in high school, I was not. And all the other brothers were separated by 18 months or two years, so we're pretty close together for four boys, and so I was able to go with all of those events, and when some of those events were taking place, they were at the leading of my father. My father would take teens on backpacking trips in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and I was able to go along, and I grew to love the out-of-doors because of that, so much so that I initially went to college. Some of you may not know this. This is for your trivia test maybe later. I went to college to be a geologist. As you can tell, that didn't work out. (laughs) I actually wanted to be a National Park Ranger. Um, But being the undisciplined youth that I was, I never let the books get in the way of my studies. Come on, wake up. That's a joke. 
I, I never studied well in school, so that didn't go out my way. In fact, I did so well in the first college I went to, they asked me to not return. And so I went and talked to my uncle named Sam and joined the military. But suffice it to say, I enjoyed hiking. I enjoyed hiking. And so my father and I launched this idea that he and I would go climbing to the top of the highest peak in the continental United States, Mount Whitney, 14,000, at least at the time, 14,494 feet. And so when I was 13 or 14, we hiked to the top of that mountain, and it was painful. It was painful, at least for me, because the altitude. I had a massive headache, which caused huge aspects of nausea in my body, and I was constantly wanting to quit. But we didn't. And I'm thankful we didn't because the beauty and the view that you could see from the peak of that mountain was spectacular, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, Rather remarkable. Now, why do I say all that? Simply to to try to help us understand this, that Romans 8 is the peak of this book. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us that the peak of our salvation, and he hones in on this reality in this text that we have before us this morning, the peak of our salvation. And he hones in on it this way in verses 24 and 25. He says, For in hope we have been saved. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Hope is a great word. We have been saved in hope. Hope is such a, such a great word. Because hope essentially means waiting with anticipation. Waiting with anticipation. In fact, the wording used here in verse 25, and we'll see it also in verse 23, and you see it also in verse 19, The wording used here is a picture, in all of those verses, it's a picture of a person being on their tippy toes, being stretching out as far as they can in their their abilities, stretching out their neck as far as they can stretch it out so they can, in anticipation, see the arrival of what they're hoping for. They're looking with intensity. They're on their tiptoes trying to see it. That's what wait eagerly for it means. As I was reading that, it reminded me of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, as the song says, unable to see over the crowd, and so he climbs up in that tree, ensuring that he could see what he was anticipating to see. I'm sure that some of your children today are stretching out their proverbial necks, waiting with anticipation for what is to come a week from Tuesday in your home. 
This is what hope is. It's an internal attitude of expectation. An internal attitude of expectation. An attitude of assured confidence that is looking forward to what is good and what is beneficial coming your way. That's the idea. And so Paul says, in an attitude of confidently looking forward to what is in our salvation, we persevere with eagerness here and now. We persevere with eagerness here and now. In other words, hope hope really is the gasoline in our Christian engine. Hope is the gasoline in our Christian engine. It, 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 it fires the engine of perseverance in the midst of life. In the midst of life. And so what is in our salvation? What is in our salvation that we are hoping for? Well, verse 1 says there's no condemnation before God. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what's in our salvation, a position of no condemnation. Why? Because we learned in verses 1 through 4, we're unified with Jesus Christ. We are unified with Christ. That's our position. You cannot exit yourself from that position, nor can you get yourself into that position by your own efforts and work. It is a work of God. By faith. Because of His grace. And yet, it is a permanent position when you are in it. You cannot get out of it. There is no condemnation. There is no eternal condemnation upon your head because you are unified with Jesus Christ. That is your position. You must realize that. You must take comfort in that. You must set your hope knowing that. Then Paul said there's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, verses 5 through 13, which is our character. The Holy Spirit in us is the very reality of our life being changed. We follow after the Spirit. We set our mind on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace, verse 6 says. That's our character. We don't set our mind on the things of the flesh. That's not who we are. Because we are unified in Christ, because our position is with Christ in reference to the reality of our position of no condemnation, therefore we have a different character because the Spirit of God is in us. And then we said the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is also our identity. Our identity. We are the children of God. We are the children of God. We saw that in verses 14 to 17. For those, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are sons of God. That is what a Christian is, someone who is being led by the Spirit. And therefore, you are a son of God. You have a spirit, not of slavery, but a spirit of adoption, one that cries out, Abba, Father. If the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, verse 16, children of God, and if we are children, then everything that is Christ is ours. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's our identity. And this morning, I want to look at this fourth proof of our 
no condemnation reality of our salvation. The inheritance we have in glory. The inheritance we have in glory. Or we could even say the inheritance we have is glory. The inheritance we have is glory. So we have our position, our character, our identity. And glory is our place. Our place. If we have time, we'll even get into the sixth, which is the Holy Spirit's intercessory work on our behalf. But for now, number four, the inheritance we have in glory. The realization that glory is at the peak of the mountain. Glory is at the top. Is stated for us in verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress... Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We are, verse 37, more than conquerors. In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through Him who loved us. And of course, verse 38 and 39 that we read earlier, there is nothing whatsoever in this created world in any kind of way. The created world you see or the created world you do not see in the glories of, of the fallen Uh, parts that fell out of heaven and still are in the spiritual realm. Nothing could separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not angels. Not principalities. Not powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Glory is at the peak and the road or the trail to that place on this earth, we have to understand, is a trail of suffering. Gee, Pastor, thanks for encouraging us this morning. The Christian trail is a trail of difficulty. I was thinking this morning as I was sitting in my office and Randy and I were talking and I was telling him I was reading, I'm reading chronologically through the scriptures and I'm now in the New Testament, obviously it's about to end this year and I was reading through Philippians this morning and realizing Paul in all of his ministry. Here's the Apostle Paul, all the work he's done. Thirteen books that we have in the New Testament are the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, I have one guy who's with me. Wow. You mean life wasn't good, Paul? Yeah, it was great. Just not the way you think. The trail of suffering. We began to see this last Lord's Day. And it's continued for us in this section this morning. You might think that Paul would have just not continued in the suffering realm because he mentions glory in verse 17. If we are heirs also, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. All right, Paul, you moved on to a new subject. Glory. Yes and no. We've been introduced to the thought of the coming glory that we have in Christ. In fact, this entire section 
talks about glory, and Paul won't even finish with the idea of glory until you get down to verse 30, where he said, in verse 29 and 30, which is that great golden chain of how we are in the family of God. God foreknows those whom he, he predestines and he, the, to be the, uh, conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. For those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's through the whole thing. Glory, 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 glory. But we need to understand that in the Scriptures, glory and suffering seem to always be together. They seem to always show up as brothers walking on the same road. I'm not going to go into all the places here and now, but if you do a simple search in your concordance or go on your computer, do a simple search with those two words, suffering and glory, and you will get the idea that suffering and the reality of being glorified as believers is always side by side. It's always side by side. In fact, in our study of John's gospel in our evening service, this is one of the conclusions that we come to throughout the final words of Jesus Christ as we've been studying them from verse from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 16. In fact, Jesus even says to the disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, pressure, extreme pressure because you're identified with me. But cheer up, I've overcome the world. In other words, have confident hope in the glory to be revealed through your suffering. But sadly, this idea of suffering and glory side by side, or just suffering in Christianity in general, has been a major false message that all of the false gospels try to deny. And many believe. The thought that a person will never have any more difficulty or trouble in this life when they come to know Jesus Christ is a damning lie. Paul says, because you are suffering with him, you can be certain that you will be glorified with him. Totally opposite. In other words, the Apostle Paul is clearly identifying us as Christians in unequivocal terms that sonship in the family of God, our identity, sonship leads to glorification, and the trail in that sonship is a trail of suffering. It is a trail of pain. It is a trail of difficulty. And it is not hopelessness, which many people think. It is not unreasoned. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, Paul had been through a whole host of things already in his life up to this moment, and even at this moment he is sitting waiting trial, waiting trial before the Roman government. 
And yet you notice that Paul is not expressing an opinion about this truth that he is sharing. He is not just saying, hey guys, listen, this is my opinion about the Christian life. No, he says, this is a well thought through judgment. The word consider has the idea of assured knowledge. I have an assured knowledge about this. We could say that this is real hope as opposed to some kind of wishful thinking. Gee, I hope this turns out well. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, I, I consider this. This is assured knowledge. This is something we must truly consider. You say, what is that? The massive contrast between our present sufferings because of our unity with Christ and the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. We have to have a assured knowledge in reference to that massive contrast. This is where we must live. In other words, one of the means by which you and I as Christians endure the struggles and the difficulties of this sinful world in which we are sojourning One of the ways we endure that is by the active consideration of our current sufferings, which are linked, by the way, to being a Christian externally from the world and internally from your own battle against your sinfulness with the glory that is to come to us. Paul says, for these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared. The one thing that is incomparable between our sufferings and the glory that is to come is that the sufferings are only for here. One thing for sure about the sufferings that we endure, they're only for here. There are none of those kinds of things in glory. They are only for here. They are temporal. They are for this life. They are present sufferings, sufferings of this present time. He's not saying of this day. He's saying of this time, the time when Jesus Christ ascended to the time when Jesus Christ returned. Those are the present sufferings of our time. They are not worthy to be compared. They are for only here and glory is forever. Here's how... The Apostle Paul said it to the Corinthian believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, we don't look at the here and now, that the things which are not seen, that's hope. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. So there's a a comparison between the temporal and the eternal that cannot be even made. You can't even make it. They're not worthy to be even compared together. They're so massively different. They're so massively different juxtaposed, they're they're contradictory to one another in the sense of what they are and how long they are. 
The psalmist said in verse in chapter thirty and verse five of God, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for the lifetime. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You see, just that aspect alone should be enough for us to persevere. But it's even better than that by way of the description. I, I, I like the way Paul writes because Paul uses word pictures. I'm not very good at word pictures, but I like them. They can help us see the truths more clearly at times, and certainly God accommodates us in that way. And the words that are used here ought to do that for us. So let me, let me draw a picture for us. Obviously, there is a comparison being made here, a comparison between sufferings here in our life, in this present life, and glory which is to come to us. And we already said that is a comparison on one level with that which is temporal and that which is eternal. But there is more here, and it's tied to the word worthy. It's tied to the word worthy. The word worthy is a very significant word. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy a significant word because the idea in that word for word picture wise is like the crossbar on a scale. Now I know we use digital scales today, right? But in the olden days and we look at the law courts, they have a woman holding a scale. There's two things hanging down. There's a crossbar on that scale. The word is axios for worthy here. It comes from the word ago which means to weigh to weigh. And on a scale, you have that bar that comes up, you have that horizontal crossbar, and then you have the, 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 the wires that hold whatever plate there is, and you put whatever it is that's going to be weighed. That's the idea. That's the picture that I want us to have in our minds. So the picture is that of hanging from one end of the crossbar is your sufferings now, the temporal sufferings of this life. So you have the picture in your mind. You have the scale. One side is the sufferings of this life. Here, earthly, in this life. Because of Christ. Okay, Not the the little inconveniences of you and I living in a first world world. Where we we have our Wi-Fi go out. Or our car breaks down. Or whatever those first world problems are. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about... Your identity with Christ. On one side, you have temporal sufferings, and on the other side, you have the eternal glory that is to be yours. The picture is that those two can never, those two on the scale can never be brought. It doesn't matter how much suffering you put on the scale, they can never be brought into balance. They can never reach the place where your sufferings and the glory seem to reach an equilibrium in which they're equal now. Glory always outweighs it. 
Glory always goes far beyond it. It doesn't matter how much or what kind of suffering the world may bring into your life as a Christian. It doesn't matter how many days of that suffering you might have to go through. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what avenue that suffering comes, whether it's internal or whether it's external. None of that pile of of your own suffering will ever be enough to equal or outweigh the future glory coming to you. Ever. can never be brought to the place where the horizontal bar is level. It will never happen. Why? Because the weight of our glory far exceeds any of the present sufferings. Far exceeds. So what Paul is telling us is that even though the trail to our coming glory is filled with pain and difficulty, the culmination at the peak will immediately cause you to forget you ever went through it. When you reach the peak, you'll forget about that massive headache you had and the nausea in your stomach because the beauty of it will far outweigh You have been predestined, verse 30 says. You have been predestined to be conformed, in verse 29, to the image of His Son. And that is glorification. You are going to be Christ-like. That is the glory that is to be revealed your Christ-likeness in the presence of God the Father forever and ever and ever. And you and I, in the blinding, glorified likeness of the Savior Jesus Christ, in the presence of God the Father without being consumed. I was driving home today or this week from the office, and I noticed the sun in the sky one day, and it was beautiful, and I thought, I was thinking of the glory of God and how no one could stand in the presence of the glory of God without being consumed because it was, it was a, a sense of, the, of a pure brightness that was brighter than any light that could ever be and how the Apostle Paul is walking on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians in the light of the day, in the heat of the day, as the sun is blindingly shining upon him and a light shines that's far brighter than any of that. You and I, when we reach the peak, will be able to stand in the blinding glory of God without being consumed. And I thought, man, that is incredible because I can't even look at the fallenness of the sun without having the retina of my eyes being burned to a crisp. Paul says it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed so much that Paul lists three guaranteeing facets to that reality. Paul says it's so guaranteed, I'll show you how guaranteed it is. Number one, the creation groans for that day. What day? Our glorification. Creation groans for our glorification. Two, we groan for our glorification. And three, the Spirit groans for that day. 
Creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans. Look at this. Look at this first one. Creation longs for our glorification. Verses 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for, there's that word again, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. He's talking about us. Creation is waiting eagerly for your glorification. Some of you are sitting by the windows. Look outside. Creation itself is saying, hurry up, Lord. Glorify those people. It is clear, clear just from a simple reading that Paul is thinking back to Genesis chapter 3. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. Creation didn't violate its understanding and obedience to God the Father. Creation was doing exactly what God had created creation to do. The water was flowing as God had told it to flow. The plants were growing as God had commanded them to grow. The trees were as large as God had commanded. The fruit was bearing. The garden was exactly as God had created it, and it was doing exactly what it should be doing. And yet the horrific effects that came from the fall of man was placed upon it. The creation itself was subjected in futility or to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected it. God subjected upon it the curse that was upon man because of man's sin. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption Notice, not into the freedom of its own previous glory. You notice it doesn't say that? It says, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Into your glory. And then Paul says in verse 22, creation groans with the pains of labor. But we know. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We know this, Paul says, of course. Of course we know this. We see that all around us. It's common knowledge. That's what Paul's saying. Look, you don't have to look far. You know this is true of creation. You know the reality of what's going on in creation. Creation is groaning all the time. There is evidence of the groanings of creation every day. You say, how so? Well, there are natural calamities that happen every day. There are earthquakes that happen. There are storms that happen. There are tsunamis that take place. There are natural realities that happen which are groanings. There are wars and rumors of wars which Jesus said are just the beginnings of birth pangs for the end to come. This is what nature does. This is the groanings of nature. In fact, every time the springtime comes in this area, The curse and the groanings of creation are more visible than ever as the weeds somehow never stop. Some of you sweet ladies come here to the church when spring comes and you pull all the weeds out of this planter up here and the planters around the church. I've never seen any one of those ladies come and plant weeds. Never. But the weeds just keep coming. Come back every year. Why? 
Because that's part of the creation of God, groaning for the day when we will finally be glorified. And it will be returned to the glory that it had before sin ever entered in. Every part of creation has been permeated by the curse. And the result is that it groans under that bondage. Contrary to man's espoused wisdom, man is unable and will be forever unable to save the earth from its burden. Contrary to the popular spousings of human philosophies of science, man will never be able to save the earth. Try as you will. You can try to hug all the trees you want. They will never hug you back. You can attempt to shrink your carbon footprint, but you will always need a bigger size. You can work all you want to no longer fill the planet with decay of trash and junk, and it will always be futile. Why? Because creation has been subjected to the curse. Creation has been subjected to futility. And it will not be until you and I, the believer, is glorified that it will it be restored to its previous glory. And so creation longs for our glorification. Paul says, listen, our temporal sufferings have no way to be compared to the glory to come. And I'll, I'll show you even creation is waiting for that day. It is such a massive, monumental day that even creation itself is waiting for that day. Think of it the next time you are suffering as a believer. Think of that. Creation is on its tippy toes, stretching out its neck as far as it can, looking for the coming day of your glorification. That day, verse 21 says it will be set free from its slavery into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's you and I. That's the Christian. It will be set free into the freedom of the glory that we have. The ones who are united with Jesus Christ, the ones whose character has been changed by the indwelling Spirit, the ones who are identified as the children of God, the ones who stand... No condemnation before God. We are not condemned. So listen. It's not only us who will be glorified, but creation itself will have the restrictions that were placed on it by our sin removed. And the full wonder of God's handiwork will be on display. We look around this world, we can see the beauty in a flower, we can see beauty in a sunrise. We look around the world and we can see wonder in the vast oceans, but this is a fallen world. If fallenness is that beautiful, can you only imagine what God intended it to be from the beginning? And so there is certainty to our glorification because there is certainty to the deliverance of creation. 
Creation will be delivered. There's certainty to that. And so creation's path to glorification is also through suffering. Therefore, it groans for the day of our glorification. But secondly, secondly, Paul says that we also groan for that day. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's that word again. It's not hard for all who are believers to resonate with those words. No true believer is above suffering in this life. That's the idea. Paul's not talking about, like I said, little inconveniences that we might have Paul wasn't talking about, hey, I can't believe my sandal tie broke. He's not saying that. What Paul is talking about is suffering because we're identified with Christ. And that means external trouble from the world and internal trouble because of our battle against sin. That's suffering, difficulty. And herein lies the tragedy for those who refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ. Those who refuse to believe upon Jesus Christ will never be delivered from eternal suffering. Our suffering is temporal. An unbeliever's suffering is eternal. Creation will know deliverance. You and I will know deliverance, but all the unbelievers will know is judgment and condemnation. That's all they'll know. We've been given the pledge of our eternal inheritance, the Spirit of God. We are the first fruits of the Spirit. Spirit of God indwelling us, who is the promise of God to us concerning the coming glory. He's our pledge. So we too, in our groanings against the ravages of our own sin, dealings with ourselves, the sufferings from the external pressures of a world in which we live that hates God, we also stand on our proverbial tippy toes, and we are stretching out our proverbial necks, longing for that day, Paul says, eagerly waiting for the adoption, redemption of this body. Why? Because we've been saved in hope. That's what he says, verse 24 and 25. In hope we've been saved. And because we don't see it, we continue. Because we don't see it, we persevere. We continue on the trail to the peak. Hebrews 12, we run the race with endurance. We lay aside every encumbrance and sin that entangles us. Colossians 3, we seek the things above, not the things of the earth. We set our minds on the things above. We keep looking to Christ. We, we set our minds on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Hebrews says. We have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ, Philippians 2. We endure. We press on toward the goal for the high calling with which we have been called in Christ Jesus. This is hope. That's hope. We walk by faith. We earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 1. 
That's what we do. We refuse to compromise the truth for the sake of our own ease, for the sake of our own comfort. We'd rather suffer with the few than enjoy sin with the many. There's pain at the present, but there's coming something new, the likes of which could never be compared with what we are going through now. God will not be defeated. He knows the trouble. He knows the place in which he has placed us, and he will perfectly rectify it all. In his own way, for his own glory, and for your good. That, beloved, is what we hold to. That's what we hold to. Hope. The unsaved have nothing to hope for in the future. They have nothing to hold to. They have no indwelling spirit that encourages them to press on. Their heaven is this world. This is their heaven. It's all they have, this side of hell. But for us, despite the fact that we groan, despite the fact that there's agony here and we sojourn here on this trail to the peak, a day of redemption is coming. Glory awaits us. We are sons. Philippians 1.6, we know that he who began a good work in us will complete it. He will complete it. One day, a day is coming for all of us. The effects of sin will be removed. No longer will suffering happen. And, and that same day is the day creation longs for. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. New body. All the old vestiges of sin, gone. No temporal reality to that, permanence in the newness of life, we will fully realize our promised glorification. We'll see Christ as he is and not be consumed by the blazing glory of God. We will be ushered into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a joy that will be. We may suffer now. That pales in comparison to what's to come. It doesn't even tip the scale. It doesn't even move it. And even more so, the suffering now prepares us. Prepares us to fully enjoy Christ and His glory. I was thinking about Joe this week, not to bring up something hard for any of us. But I remember what Joe said. Don't worry about me. I'm going to see Jesus. Don't worry about me. I'm going to see Jesus. That man was suffering when he said that. God wants us to long for glory. And suffering is his means for helping us do that. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Turn to First Peter chapter five, and we'll end with this.
First Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Peter says to those who are going through difficult times, be sober, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what an encouraging view of what is to come. The wonder and majesty of being glorified and in your presence overwhelms me. Unfathomable and and relatively unexplainable because of all that glory means. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have that as our view that we would look to you, that we would have you, the author and perfecter of our faith, in our forefront of our minds, no matter what you allow here and now. Oh, I know we don't like it. Our flesh hates it, Lord. My flesh hates it. Help me to look at it through the eyes of what is to come. The temporal reality of the here and now in comparison to the far outweighing glory that is to come. Oh, Lord, help us to have the view of these things like our brother had. Longing to see you. What a joy. What a, what a gift you have given us. Thank you for verifying all that, even with your words and through the example of creation and even the battle of our own self against sin. Lord, we ask that you would use us in that way, that your name would be seen and heard from us, even if they want to tie us to a stake and light the match. Help us do that with faithfulness as you hold us there for your sake and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.